Ross FM 94.6 Broadcasting around the world on the World Wide Web Listen in online at rossfm.ie You're tuned in to The Open Door on Ross FM 94.6 Presented by myself, Margaret McHugh Every Thursday between 9 and 10am The Open Door talk show brings together all communities from near and far by giving them a platform to share their stories of life as it was, as it is. You will hear the voices of those who speak about the good, the bad, what unites or divides our nation, and what can we achieve by joining together with one vision of an all-inclusive plan. Welcome along to The Open Door here on Ross FM 94.6. I'm Margaret McHugh and I am with you until 10 o'clock this morning. Today's guest is Victor Connell from County Longford. He is the manager of Longford Counselling Services. He is also a wheelchair user and he will share his story about how he ended up in a wheelchair and about his tragic accident on the rubby pitch which left him in a wheelchair and changed his life forever but she shows how he's turned his life around and how anything can be achieved now before we listen to his life story text into 083859978 that's 083859978 if you have any requests or just want to drop a comment in on the show or any other show listen in live on the tuning app Listen in live at rossfm.ie. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at rossfm. Now, let's listen to my conversation with Victor Connell earlier on. Victor, you're welcome to the open door here on Ross FM 94.6. You are the manager of uh, Longford Counselling and Support Services. But I just want to talk about your early life for people who don't know you and um, what you represent from the point of view of turning your life around. Talk to me about growing up. Where did you grow up? Um, I grew up in a small parish there in County Longford called Clough. It's about four miles outside of Longford town, out towards the Granard direction. So I would have grown up right beside the local GA pitch there, um, and yeah, I had a pretty normal uh, growing up. Everything was pretty good. Went to the local national school, St. Teresa's. And then I went to St. Mel's College in Longford. So it was a big football school. And I ended up repeating my leave and surf then out in Moyne Community School. So yeah, pretty standard. Went I was going to go to college. Um, and when I repeated my leave and surf and then decided to do an apprenticeship in paint and decorating with John Joe Brennan from Newtown Forbes. So started that sort of after leaving cert and worked up and did that until I had my accident. Um, was very much involved with sport, played GA with the local club, um, played rugby with uh, Longford and squash and a couple of different sports, enjoyed fishing. So, yeah, I was very active, sort of loved my work, sort of. That, so, yeah, pretty normal sort of up, upbringing on that until I had an accident in 2005 then. Talk our listeners through the accident and what happened to you for people who don't know. Um. So, yeah, it was pretty normal. I was playing senior rugby for um the first team in Longford against uh, Russ Gray. It was the 2nd of October 2005 and it was just a couple of minutes left in the game. I went into a scrum and... um. 
just to, just on impact, it was the old type scrum, so there was no for people that know rugby, there was no crouch, touch, pause. It was just sort of you bent over and went in as hard as possible. Rules have changed now because of safety and because of the accidents to the likes of myself. The, um, the rules have changed, so them accidents can't really happen anymore. But yeah, it was just basically it was a Sunday afternoon, so um, ended up the accident was about I'd say half four in around that time. Um, yeah, just went into the scrum, felt my neck pop and just fell to the ground. Then um, though I was still conscious, can remember everything after the accident. Um, was moved to Mullingar Hospital then, had the x-rays and moved straight on to the matter then. So they tried to, um, my spine was dislocated at the C4, C5 vertebrae, which would be fairly high injury. Uh, C1 would be the highest injury you can get. Uh, so it would have been around the base of my neck, sort of top of my shoulder area, where I would have dislocated the spine. So I tried to relocate the spine um, with weights, different things, couldn't do it. So eventually, around four or five o'clock that morning, I had an operation on my neck. Um, woke up a couple of hours later, whatever, I think it was 11 or 12. I was in a, an isolation room just up by myself and there was uh, another nurse um, there. And I asked him what how, like had happened. And he said, you had your surgery, um, but you'll probably never... Uh, walk again, you'll probably never use your arms again and you might be on a ventilator for the rest of your life. So pretty shocking news, pretty sort of on your own, hard to take it. I was a bit blunt, I suppose. Um, met with family then after that and started to get a little bit sort of maybe anxious and different things built up, a lot of things going through your head as you can expect. Um, end up developing pneumonia then, so end up getting a tracheostomy, which is a, what a lot of people will be getting now with COVID diseases a pipe uh, into your wind tube to help you breathe, basically. So after everything being taken away, sort of physically, then my speech was taken away, so I couldn't really talk or anything like that. So that was pretty sort of tough. So then a couple of days, and the first couple of days into the injury were the most horrific and the most sort of mentally challenging. Physically, I, I could do nothing. I sort of knew that early on, but mentally it was trying to accept it or trying to come to terms with it or figure it out. So, yeah, that that's basically how the accident happened. When the accident happened and you fell to the ground, did you think something major had gone wrong? Like, what was going through your head? Or were you in pain? Or did you feel nothing at that point? No, I felt nothing at that point. Uh, shock more, more so than nothing else. Um knew straight away that I, w- I was um, in, in, in trouble. Um, I, I knew from the impact and just the pop, I let a roar out me then and just when the players pulled apart, I just sort of fell to the ground or was let down to the ground, whatever way you want to put it. And I just, I knew I told the physio not to go near me. I, I said, my neck is broke. I says, I have no power in my arms, legs. I, I don't know whether it was sort of maybe from watching programs or whether it was intuition or, I don't know what it was, but I just knew straight away. So the physio just put me in sort of a comfortable position, made sure I wouldn't swallow my tongue, different things like that, and rang the ambulance. So pretty quick, my own doctor, uh, Dr. Paul Truitt, was on was was the doctor for the team, so he was there as well. So I was lucky that there was a good medical team there already, and the ambulance didn't take that long to come. But no, I, I was quite awake. I was actually in good form. I 
ask one of me players for a cigarette while I was waiting and that sort of thing. So like the shock had, had, had sort of kicked in, but at the same time, realism had kicked in as well. That must have been a very long journey up to Mullingar Hospital and then to Dublin. Did you feel, OK, my life is over? Like, did you automatically just go into a sort of close off negative mode? Uh, well, I was getting into the back of the ambulance and I said to my best friend who sort of came with me in the ambulance and I said, what have I got us into now, sort of thing. And he said, look, I'll show whatever it is, so we'll be here. So that sort of reassured me, sort of thing, that look, yeah, this is going, I didn't know how serious, I just knew that was going to be serious. Um, like, I didn't know whether surgery could fix us or all these sort of things at that early stage, but yeah, it was a quick drive up to Mullingar and then quick x-rays and that sort of thing. And I knew by the staff in the hospital how serious it was or maybe how high it was at that stage. And then it was the quick drive up to Mullingar. And yeah, it was a long time or a quick drive up to the Maher, sorry. But it was a long time in the Maher trying to pop it back in because they didn't really want to operate. So what they did was sort of the screw sort of things into your temples and sort of put weight on the back of your head and tried to sort of pop the, the main part of the spine in. So by the way, they had discussed me, I was pretty calm, all considered. So I knew exactly what they were doing and what they were explaining to me that they were at. But no, I didn't think that life was over, but I knew life was definitely changed. Didn't know how, how much it was going to change, but I, like I had an idea, look, there's going to be no sport or work for a while. But I didn't consider it was going to be for years. I thought maybe months until you you sort of get a week into it, really, and then you realise how much damage you had done. Talk to me about your family's feelings and how they reacted and how they kept it together for you. Or who like who was the stronger one, or were you sort of the symbol of strength that you are now today? Were you the same symbol back then of strength going through all this? I I wouldn't have considered myself be, to be, but I was told that I was. Um, uh, like in intensive care, there was only two people allowed in at time, so like there was queues waiting outside between family, friends, uh, football and rugby colleagues, different things like that. So with all them coming to see me, it sort of made me think, look, I've got a bright face on these, this sort of thing because... Some of them were pretty upset coming in, whereas I had, I don't know, maybe a, a little bit of a head start. They didn't know what they were coming in to see. I couldn't see what they were seeing, which was all tubes and pipes and wires coming out of me. Me hardly being able to talk, but still managing to talk with a tracheostomy, which is, the nurses said, pretty hard done. But I, I managed to sort of do it. And it was just sort of, I knew that, I was going to be okay. I was surrounded by a good medical team. I knew my family were a sort of a strong family and I knew I had a good set of friends. So it was me not putting a, a good side on things, but just sort of letting people know, look, um, I'm, I'm strong here. I'm going to fight this sort of thing. I'm, I'm not going to give in to it. And at, that, at, the, at the start, that was sort of a lot of talk, really, I suppose. I was trying to convince myself even at that stage. But then one or two things happened. I had sort of a bad night um, at one stage in the hospital, just ended up uh, vomiting on top of myself, the bowel went, bladder went, everything just went wrong and it went wrong again then maybe about an hour later and 
I just thought that that was the stage, I think, where a lot of things changed. I broke down a little bit, cry, had a good sort of cry for myself, never afraid to cry, but just a nurse came over and she was just very nice to me and she said, look, your life has changed at this stage. Um, the quicker you can accept it, the better for you and sort of start to move on. Um, it's going to take a while physically and mentally, but it's it, it will be worth it if you work out. So I suppose that little sort of talk, I just had to think to myself after that and I sort of said, look, you can go two ways. You can sort of just give up on life and sort of say, poor me, or you can sort of say, look, I'm going to fight this thing and see how far I can get. And just with the help of family and friends and health officials and stuff like that and and just work it out and see how it goes sort of thing. And I think that night then as well, or a couple of hours there, the man in the bed next to me died and his family came in and I saw how upset they were. Another man across the way then died a couple of hours later and his family. So I said, look, even if I'm here, just physically, and sitting in a chair, like I'm still mentally aware, I'm still mentally capable, and I won't be putting my family through that by dying. So then I started thinking about love. Like I'd lost the, um, the man that I was working with, John Brennan, had lost his son the previous May to an accident. I had lost a good friend. Myself through bowel cancer the year before, um, Derek Belton. So I saw how death really had affected families. And I said, look, I, I don't want to die. I want to live on and I want to sort of whatever physical or whatever I can do, at least I can have fun and I can participate mentally. So I suppose that was the turning point And that was sort of where I said, look, I have to lead from the front here. I have to show everybody else that... I'm going to be the leader, but I'll need assistance and I'm not going to be afraid to ask for it. How long were you in the matter, Victor, and what was the plan afterwards? What was the plan um, to get you on the road to recovery? Three weeks. Three weeks. And then I was moved on to Dunleary then after that. So, about the, well, maybe, maybe about four weeks in, in the, the matter. I was moved out to Dunleary then around the start or middle of November and got home that Christmas. Uh, which was great. It, it it was now I was very weak still and couldn't do a lot and everybody had to do everything for me, so I had to be fed at that stage. I had to get someone to give me a drink. I had to get someone to push me around in the chair. So it was very demoralising at that stage, but great feeling to get home for Christmas and see some people that I hadn't saw for a while. Um, I stayed in Dunleary then until the June of that year, the bank holiday of two thousand and six. Uh, came home. It was great weather, a great time coming home. I was strong enough physically, but I was probably feeling nearly too good. So I was doing a lot of stuff that I was told not to do, basically staying in the chair too long, not watching me skin enough, and uh, developed a pressure sore. Now, at home, in the meantime, they had built an extension for me. So I had a downstairs bedroom to myself and a downstairs toilet which was great. I can have my own little space outside and my own entrance where friends could come in and out. So that was the sort of plan thus far to just get home was the main plan at that stage. And then I ended up back in Dunleary in the September with the pressure sore um, and didn't get out until the following January. So that was that time actually from the September to the January with the pressure sore was probably a lot harder than the first time in hospital because I didn't leave the bed for them five months. I was just getting turned every four hours side to side, keeping me off the pressure sore to try and let me heal. So I had no physio, I had no occupational therapy, 
I had no real goals apart from healing. Whereas the first time when I was in hospital, it was all working at physio, trying to get your strength back, trying to just adapt to the whole new normal sort of thing. And it was just a whole sort of thing. But when you're lying in bed, it, it's a lot harder. So it is. Did you question why me um, in the later years or at the start of your accident? Yeah, definitely sort of. I don't think you'd be normal if you didn't sort of question why me and start looking back at life and sort of say, what did I do wrong to deserve this? Or is there something that is planned out for me? I wouldn't be a religious man. I'd be maybe uh, from sort of the accident, I, I sort of developed some spirituality rather than sort of maybe religion sort of thing. But no, yeah, definitely question sort of why me and why not someone else and this sort of thing. But at the end of the day, I was sort of saying, like, why not me? Like, why shouldn't me? The accidents happen to a lot of people. Again, I was thinking of my friends that had died in the previous year or two. Like, and I said, like, why them? Like, they were great men. They were lovely people. And it happened to them and to their families. So it was sort of a case of, that's sure, look, it can happen to anybody. It was just a pure accident. It was something that I had done thousands of times with training, matches, stuff like that. And... Yeah, you just do it wrong once and that's it. That's what happens. What did you learn about yourself and your community where you were born and raised and your friends after the accident and over the years? Um, I suppose it was more my community and my friends proved uh, who they were and like sort of backed up who I always thought they were. Um, my the local rugby club, like they developed big fundraisers stuff like that to help me down the line and build a house for me, get to make my life as independent as possible and to put huge effort into that, setting up uh, the Far Victor Fund and different things like that. And my friends, the ones that I knew were true friends, all stuck by me and are sort of still there. Like we still pal around and they just support me anytime I needed that or needed to go anywhere. They were always there and still are. So they just sort of proved that had chose the right friends and that my community was a very strong football and community like the football GA club raised a lot of money too um, helped with the house when they were building the house here like everybody sort of donated two days free of charge so all carpenters everything like that when we were slating the roof here at, at the house I think there was some something like 19 or 20 people doing the job at the time they were all doing it for free at them time so it, it, it was great organization by my community and i'm very proud of them and very grateful to them um i suppose about myself i learned i was stronger than i thought i was mentally um i'd never sort of would have like if you were to say before me and if a lot of people said it to me since i'd never be able to do what you do or go through what you go through but I would have said the exact same thing before the accident myself that I would I wouldn't be able to handle that I would, it, it wouldn't be me sort of thing but it sort of it reinforced um, that I I I was a strong enough individual and that I I had picked the right people to surround myself with. Now talk to me about the journey you went on then starting maybe at 2008-2009-10 when your house was built and when you started to become independent what yeah, was your so, new path? Yeah so in um, when I was, as I said that, that time in the hospital the second time there was no plan so 
I sort of, you have so much time to think. I started setting out a plan. So I said, look, I'll give myself 10 years. Like I was 25 at the time, just or just turned, after turned 26. Um, I said, look, I'll give myself until I'm mid 30. So I'll give myself 10 years. And I said, first thing I want to do is get out of here, get out of the hospital. So get out, get healthy, stay healthy. Don't get any pressure sores. Do what you're sort of told and look after yourself mentally and physically, which was sort of get a bit of counselling maybe um, and and just sort of diet right, that sort of right thing right. The second thing I wanted to do then was build a house because I knew I'd need a base rather than for a couple of months that I had lived at home. They were grand and that was great, but it was an old house and like door jams are tight, different things like that. I didn't want to be confined to a room, one room for the rest of my life either. So I said I'd, I'd build a house and I'd make it sort of accessible and but not one that looked like someone with a disability was living in it. Um, the third thing then was to um, go back to college. So I needed something to for an education. I knew I wasn't going to work physically again, but I knew I couldn't sit around in a house for the next 20, 30, 40 years, whatever it was going to be, without doing anything. Um, so that was the next thing. I didn't know what I was going to go back to do at college. I just, and I didn't even know whether I'd be able to, or whether it'd be online or that sort of thing. And then the fourth one was then to get driving. Um, I had saw up and done Leary that people with disabilities can drive. I'd never drove a car or a van or anything before on the road, never had a license. So that was it. And then the fifth one then was to get a job and just be able to pay for myself within the community and not to be dependent on anybody else and be as independent as sort of possible. So that all started sort of when I got out nearly straight away, the house started to develop. Um, so the first thing was achieved. I got out and I, would, I was going to watch myself. The second one then was got the house. So the house started to be developed with, and then... Duncan Stewart got involved from RTE with about the house and it ended up turning into be an energy efficient house as well as a accessible house. So we got an A2 rating when we built the house. Uh, we started building the house in September and I moved in in December. So with all the voluntary help and that sort of thing, that went without a, a sort of click. So in the meantime, I'd been looking about college courses. Uh, this is around 2009, 2010, I suppose. Um, I saw a course for psychology in Atlow and IT. And I was always a person that loved sort of people's mind. I was always a, I suppose, a leader of people. I was always, a, I was a captain for a lot of the teams that I played for. So I had that sort of, I suppose, leadership sort of quality. And a lot of people used to come and talk to me and that sort of thing and privacy. So, and I used to always, I was, I was always a people watcher as well. Not a voyeur now, but a sort of a people watcher. I'd, I'd like to see sort of what, um, where people developed and sort of people did different sort of things. So I sort of got that, that I said that would be good. So that was on for a year, uh, twice a week. So I went up to Atlow and got my cert from NUI Minute, actually the cert in psychology was from. And in that time, I had got a love for the mind and for counselling and different things like that. So I saw another course uh, through PCI College in Atlow which was on on weekends and that sort of thing. So entered myself for that, did the three years, um, and then decided I'd, I'd stay on and do my degree then as well. So I did four years, so five years back studying in all, really. Uh, so I got my degree in counselling and psychotherapy through Middlesex University in London. 
And then I was just working, yeah, just, just sort of doing training, was up and down to Mullingar, um, to the centre there, helping out people with uh, physical disabilities and wheelchairs there. Uh, going around to doing, I started doing some talks in school about positive mental health. And then it developed, I got, started doing voluntary work in Good to Talk in Longford, which was a low-cost counselling service in Longford and Mullingar to provide the service. So um, that was it. The, the manager ended up sort of leaving there. And um, that day, the, the, the management of Mullingar offered me the job off manager in Longford, um, which was a, a great thing. But I didn't know what I was ready for. it. I was still early into my counselling days. Um, that same night, in fact, then, which it was just by coincidence, uh, I won the Longford Person of the Year award. Uh, so it was it was a funny sort of a, a Friday that so it was. But I suppose winning the award that night maybe sort of make up the decision. Look, yeah, I, I'll I'll take on this. It's a challenge, but this is sort of what I wanted. Um, it, it was a non-paid position, but a position would have provided me with work and something to keep my mind occupied and that sort of thing. So. That went on from there and then um, ended up that good talk in Mullingar decided just to concentrate on Mullingar, which was perfectly happy because um, that's where them people were from. They were West Me people, Mullingar people. So I couldn't, after working in the service I managed, I couldn't see it leave Lamford. So I just rebranded it and took it over myself and set it all up, kept a lot of councillors out there and called it Lamford Counselling Service. So were open since March 2018 in Longford as Longford Counselling Services. So it's been a bit of a roller coaster, but I achieved my five points within um, nine years. So set out a few new goals about different things, um, about passing the driving test and different things like that. So I've, I've actually achieved them since. So it's um, it's been a busy few years. You sound like a very determined man. You sounded very determined before your accident. Maybe this is the wrong thing to say, but, you know, from every sorrow, um, great things can be achieved. And I think your attitude and uh, your way of looking at what happened is positive and inspirational. Well, that's, I suppose, it. Like, and through the counselling training, like, uh, I was sort of... Um, Carl Rogers, he's... Uh, humanistic sort of counsellor and he'd be sort of person-centred which is sort of where I come from. I wouldn't be into Freud or all this sort of thing about born. It's it more got to do with the person and the way they're thinking. One of his things was self-actualization. So trying to be the best person that you can be no matter what circumstances that you're in, but trying to reach that goal. And I suppose that's what I try to do. Like different things are always going to be against me and don't get me wrong. Like there, there is down days and stuff like that but it's a matter about how you control them down days or a lot of times I just let them sit sort of just sort of like yeah I wake up or is it bad day and I just said yeah let yourself have a bad day like, there's nothing wrong with letting yourself have a bad day it's just saying look tomorrow is going to be a better day I'm going to do this tomorrow maybe yeah even if I can just get up and enjoy a cup of tea tomorrow or have a good two hours tomorrow it's better than having no good hours today so yeah, like I, I, that's why I do go around and try and get, try and do the talks in the schools as much as possible to kids and like fair play to a lot of the schools lately to have sort of got me in or looking for me for mental health week and that sort of thing too to give the, the thing and that 
if something does happen, that life isn't over, there's life after a wheelchair, there's life after an accident or a traumatic experience like a car crash or a parent dying. Like, and I'm, I'm my sort of speciality in the counselling thing is grief, loss, and I suppose bereavement and trauma. So I, I hope I can give some of my clients that come into me that are in them situations a bit of hope when they see me sort of or hear about me and me being positive across from them in the room that yes well look if he can sort of make a positive out what has happened to him well maybe if I can do five percent of that well then that will help me along that sort of way and it's all about small little bits and steps and stuff like that like building the house and driving the car like they were all stuff that went on over like the house went up quick enough but that wasn't just me but like the car, it took me four, nearly five years to get ready that I could sort of get the car. It took three to four different cars to actually get figured out. And it was just, yeah. And I was very, very lucky too that I had the backing of good friends and good family and good clubmates. And uh, I had a few charitable trust that looks after injured players. They were very good. Like they paid for some of the college and they paid for some of the cars. So, I know I'm in a blessed position and that's I do have to look from, at myself sometimes from other people that are in wheelchairs that aren't in as lucky position that maybe had a car crash or one of the lads I was in hospital with had his accident on a trampoline and as he said to me, like the trampoline company aren't going to pay me for falling over or jumping up and down on it wrong. So I had a good start and a good solid uh, foundation to work and to be this positive and I know some it, it would be a lot harder for, for other people but it is a lot got to do with the, your mental attitude towards it. And I believe that a positive mental attitude towards anything is 60% of the battle, at least. Do you think people can see past a wheelchair? Is there still a divide in society that people can't look past the disability? Because, you know, I find there's also invisible disabilities out there. And why is society still that way? Um, I think a little bit of fear or probably mostly fear and a little bit of ignorance. Um, now, I don't mean to say that people are ignorant, but they're just not informed. And I suppose what I mean by that as well is the same got to do with mental health, I think, in a certain sort of way that it's not explained to people. Like, uh, anxiety is just a word and so is depression. Like, there's so much different types of anxiety and different types of depression and like people, it's a label, and I suppose when people see other people coming in a wheelchair or even on a frame or anything like that, they don't know what to do. They don't know what to say. Whether they're, they're afraid, it's nearly gone like the race thing now. Some people are afraid what to say. It's gone politically correct, and like years ago, people there were people in wheelchairs that were looked on as like th- that word was what had them handicapped. So like they weren't really part of society, and they were kept at home or they're put into homes. But now with people like me and uh, young James Cawley there, like it was great to see him getting married there in Longford last week. People like that in wheelchairs, we aren't afraid to go out. We aren't afraid to be in public um, sort of thing. So we're a lot more in people's faces. So people are a little bit afraid sometimes to sort of, and we're not old either, which is the other expected thing that if you see a wheelchair, it's an old person in it. So when you see us tipping in and out to the shop or going to a restaurant, and it sort of never gives people a shock. It's, oh, geez, what are they doing out? And people say, oh, it's great to see you out, which is one of my bugbearers of a saying. Like, it's, oh, it's great to see you out. As if you're nearly in the house or someone was looking after you the whole time. And this was your only time out in the last couple of months. 
sort of thing. Like people still have that sort of mentality in their head that if you're in a wheelchair, you can't do anything. So and that if that you're nearly brittle, they can't touch you, they can't say hello to you. They don't know whether to put out their hand to shake hands with you if you can raise your hand. So what I tried to do was try to make a joke of it or try to make it as easy for them to sort of say or like watch their toes there to drive across you. So make jokes and different things over. So it is sort of, and then ignorance, I've gone back to that sort of point. It's that people, yeah, people just don't know that people in wheelchairs have a full life, sometimes fuller than the person that they're actually talking to. I do think it is um, just a mentality and it's like everything in Ireland. It's been handed down from generation to generation. So do yeah, you feel... Like as I said, years ago, they were all hidden away. Same with anybody that had mental health problems. They were sent up to same Lomans or they're sent to her home and oh, that, that was the end of them. They were never seen in society again. Whereas now, as I said, we're, we're there, we're in their faces and it, it, it nearly frightens people, so it does. Do you think we as uh, individuals and the education system and the health system have a responsibility to break down that barrier more? Because I don't see or believe there's enough education in how to no. get over that fear. No, there's not enough education and there's not enough uh, role models. I don't think there's like even if I look out for role models for people like I'm not trying to be a role model and I don't want to be a role model. And when people call me inspirational, it doesn't really sit well with me. I just I'm just doing what I'm doing. I'm I'm doing it as much for me. I'm, I'm as selfish really as anything else. Like this is all a lot of this is to prove stuff to myself that I can actually do it. So it isn't that like and eventually and I, I don't. To tell you the truth, sometimes I don't really be thinking about anybody else. Like, and if they can see me and to say, oh, that's great, he can do it, well, I'll give it a try and see how it goes. That someone in a wheelchair sees me drive and I say, oh, geez, I didn't think that was possible. So, geez, I might give it a go. So, like, I don't want to be one of these role models. When I look for other role models, like, one main man that sticks out for me is Mark Pollock. Um, like, he was blind and he had an accident, broke his neck. And he's after getting into all this exoskeleton stuff and sort of trying to develop it scientifically and that sort of thing. And there's another one or two, and like I mentioned, James there, like he went off and be, was a teacher and was told that he'd never be able to write and that sort of stuff. And so we have to, as ourselves, as people in wheelchairs, we have to put ourselves out there as well and not be sitting at home or not be afraid to do things just because society tells us, we, oh, look, you can't do that. Who, who knows we can't do that and we don't try and do it? So we have to be a little bit more braver ourselves, I think, to people with the disabilities, along with education from the government, because the government can put as much stuff on paper and write down as much stuff as they want. But if they don't explain it to the people, well, then what good is it? Like, mm-hmm. the, the, if people can read things and say, oh, that, that sounds great. But if it's not actually explained to them, like, if you don't do this and if you don't then stay out of a park and space well then a person in a wheelchair might come along and might need it and might be able to do that or if you put all your mops and buckets into the toilets of all your restaurants and into the disabled toilets in all your restaurants but what if a person in a wheelchair comes in and needs to go to the toilet like it's it's stuff like like this that people in society need to sort of start making themselves more aware of and like my as i said with my house it's accessible in that and the universal universally accessible building regulations are there but they're not good enough because they're not enforced by people that are actually using it. 
and the same with all the a lot of the disability officers and different things or throughout the throughout all the counties they're only going by what's written down on a piece of paper by an engineer not by a person who's actually going to be using the service or that sort of thing so we need to be more involved be, be brought in by the government for more um i suppose discussion on different things before they're done at planning stage and it's universal accessibility that i'm on about like i ran in the elections there last year and it was one of the things I, I really tried to promote like it's not just for the person in the wheelchair you have to think about the person in the scooter you have to think about the person on a walking frame you have to think about the mother with a buggy you have to think about someone just after getting maybe a knee operation like steps and sort of tight toilets and all of these sort of things they have to be taught out at an early stage and not sort of be an afterthought or extended on about. We, as people with disabilities and especially people with sort of like um, sight deficiencies and stuff like that, uh, as you said, the sort of the unmentioned sort of disabilities or the hidden disabilities, then people have to start coming out as well. And so, look, I'm here as well. You might, I mightn't look like I have a person with a disability. And same with autism. Like a lot of people with autism, Asperger's, all of them things, they don't look like they have a disability, but they have. So it's trying to make life easier for everybody. And if, we, if it can make life easier for us, we won't be as dependent on the health system. We'll be looking after ourselves more. And if it can provide more PA hours rather than putting people in nursing homes and stuff like that, keep people at home and sort of as individual, as sort of, as independent as possible and that it just makes life easier for everybody. I agree with a lot of what you said there Victor and I find and when you stand back and look through society I find a lot of Irish society is not built for people with disabilities it's almost like they've been forgotten as part of Irish history and as part of the future of Ireland when it comes to buildings. I know a lot of buildings have to be accessible now because of the laws that have been brought in but there's still umptions of buildings, apartments, um, you know, houses that aren't accessible, that cause such difficulties for a person, whether you're in a wheelchair, whether you have a problem getting up and down steps. And that's the thing yeah. that kind of frustrates me and has for years. Yeah, like it, it, it's definitely like you, you have to realise some buildings can't change, they're old buildings. Yeah, that's okay. You can put different things into them, elevators and stuff like that to make it easier. Some aren't possible, so they're not. Um, so, like, that's acceptable. Like, uh, you don't mind that, but you have to, as you said, we were forgotten about in the past, but we don't want to be forgotten about going into the future. And the things like you said about, like, going out and that sort of thing, it, it, like, we are sort of invisible. But we have to, like, the building regulations, they go to a certain standard, but it must be the smallest wheelchair in the world that they use to measure it out that person can get in because most things, if I, I have a power wheelchair, so most times you can get in, you might be able to close the door behind you. So what you have to start doing is planning. So you have to plan everywhere that you're going to make to see, oh, will I get in there? Is there steps into that hotel? Have to go wheelchair accessible room? Is the toilet wheelchair accessible in that room? So everything is nearly a week's planning before you go on it, even for dinner on a Sunday if you're not going to a place that you know. And then, okay, oh, if they got toilets, have they got this, have they got that? And that puts you off. Well, that put, well, it doesn't put me off as much because I don't mind doing that sort of stuff. But it, it, that puts 90% of people off because if you were to put such an effort in, it takes the, all the joy out of it. So mm. you just rather stay at home then. So the way society and the way buildings and stuff like that are, that puts us back in our box, I suppose, as you can say, and sort of stops 
us, puts us in fear of going out because we don't want to be centre of attention at all the time. And people then again are afraid and start panicking, oh, we'll do this. And next thing you're surrounded by three or four people and nobody in a wheelchair with a disability wants that to be made uh, sort of centre like oh, and, and maybe point out that you've got a disability, really. So they'd rather stay at home and just stay quiet or just go to their centre or do whatever they want during the week. But that if, if society changes and more... Now, I do have to say in the last five years, I have saw an improvement. And now and that's within my local area, just, just footpaths and different, little different pieces. New stops that are opening up our sort of a little bit more accessible and different things like that but definitely were a lot more to do so there's I hope um there is a lot more done for people with disabilities and those with invisible disabilities as I do say um there's the silent disability and there's the visible one and you know I think we all have to be conscious in our own minds of that just talk to me about where you are in life at the moment and your role and your career would you say you have found your calling in the sense that your commitment now is to the service in Longford and your commitment is to your career and that's where you belong? Yeah, I think, I, I think as you said earlier on in the, in the interview, sometimes things might happen for a reason. And um, I suppose I, I'm, I'm in a way, I'm lucky. I, I don't consider I've ever worked really a day in my life. I loved painting and decorating when I was at I. I worked from eight o'clock in the morning till nine, ten o'clock most days at it, and it was enjoyable. And I love what I'm doing now. Um, you just get sad. I get sad. I got satisfaction out of both. This one, I suppose, is seeing people going out maybe with their head head held up high out of the room, or just maybe even seeing them with that light bulb moment going off within the room that something just clicks for them and have the eureka moment that oh, and it changes their whole mentality about the thing. So very. It's very tough work being a counsellor, but it's very rewarding work being a counsellor as well. So, yeah, at the moment, I'm, I'm committed to that. We're actually the last two to three weeks, we're gone very, very busy. Um, probably five to six, maybe eight new clients every week. We've probably got um, over 100 clients now on the books. Uh, we have seven volunteer counsellors working within our service and long for council service and on. I want to just take this opportunity to thank them for stay, staying with me and doing the same job as me. None of us get paid in there. Um, we all know I'm sort of manager. I'm there nearly every day, but other councillors, they do one or two days and they, they, like they're not getting anything out of it apart from just helping out and helping out society and that sort of thing. So I'm happy where I am at the moment. For we COVID was tough for us with money and stuff like that, but we were lucky among the local couple of local lads there with old school, new school, they donate money, so that's going to keep us okay for a while. But like we get nothing from the HSE, we get nothing from anybody else or no funding. So it's whatever comes in through the door, it keeps us open. And like we're as I said, we're low cost. And when I mean low cost, it's fifteen euros for an assessment, um, or initial consultation, which if you went private, it'll cost you probably sixty. And mm. if you're going for the HSE, you're going to be waiting six months to eight months for it. And then after that, sessions are a maximum of 25 euros. But if you can't afford to pay 25, like we'll take five, 10, whatever you can afford to give us for that session, we're not going to turn anybody away. And there's no limit on sessions. Like we'll see you, like I've, 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 I've clients in there that I've done 60, 70 sessions with, 
and like they've only maybe paid a ten or a session. If you were going private for that session, you'd be looking at seventy or eighty euros, probably depending on where you are in the country. And then if you're on the HSE, you, you only get six sessions and that's it, you're out the door. So like the service we provide is a huge service. It's very good for the local sort of community sort of is. And I'm delighted that I'm able to sort of provide it. I've got to train. It's, as you said, maybe it's a bit of a calling for me. I love what I'm doing and, and I hope to do it for as long as I can see, I suppose. And I hope maybe we can develop even a little bit further and get out and have smaller hubs because we know everybody can't get into Longford. So if we could get out to Granard once a week and have a sort of a, a morning or a, a day sort of centre there in one of the community centres and provide counselling free of charge or at low cost and Edgerstown places like that, that we can go to, uh, into the community rather than the community coming to us because our motto is that we're affordable and accessible, but if people can't get to us, we're not fully accessible. So that'd be my plan in the future is to try and bring mental health to the people. And then my other sort of goal, I suppose, is I haven't done the schools in a little while, but I suppose a lot of students now that I have talked to will be gone out of school. So I'd like to get back maybe doing schools and sort of promoting my own sort of local thing at that sort of stage. So, But yeah, that's, that's the plans for the moment, Anya. They're what I call um, very hopeful plans for the community and for future users. So just for people listening, um, where are you located in Longford? What's the number for the counselling service? And um, is there an email address or website people can look up? Yeah, we're located straight across from the cathedral in Longford there. Number two, Keowans Terrace, we're the red door across from the cathedral in Longford there, just at the cathedral car park. So... Our phone number is 043-334-477. And then we're um, Longford Counselling at Hotmail.com is our email. Uh, we're on Facebook as well, Longford Counselling Services. And then LongfordCounselingServices.ie is our webmail address. So just after launching or sort of doing our a web page for ourselves and sort of during COVID to develop that and let people sort of get feel maybe and see who we are and that sort of thing if they want to look at before we come in. But yeah, you can come in or you can just yeah, just walk in, give the phone a ring and we usually get you to see you within the week. If not, it'll be definitely within two weeks. Just with we were able to guarantee a week up until I suppose as I said, three or four weeks ago we've just gone so busy. It's it's nearly taken a week and a, a bit now to get to see people, but we'll definitely see you. And um yeah, and just to say for anybody who wants to contact us, we're we're there. And we're open half nine to half five, uh, Monday to Friday. For somebody listening who maybe wants to support uh, the counselling services and the work you do, can people donate or is that possible? Uh, people can make a donation to the service, they can send whatever, but we have no um, sort of account. We're sort of trying to get that set up. We're in the middle of trying to get the charity status and stuff like that, but it's just a lot of paperwork and sort of ins and outs. But hopefully we will have that by the end of the year and we'll be able to have a donation page. But if people want to make a donation, they can just send it to the number two, Keowans Terrace in Longford or that, and then um, we'll be able to facilitate it from there. We'll be per- very grateful. That's perfect, Victor. And I hope people get behind your vision and the service and as you said and I'd like to say well done to the volunteer counsellors for providing the service always and especially during these difficult times and I think um, 
you know, they deserve to be recognised. You know, people talk about frontline workers, but I suppose, you know, frontline workers can be the person standing behind the screen in the shop or the counsellor sitting for free in um, yeah. this counselling service. So they all uh, deserve some sort of recognition for what they've done and for what you've done also. Yeah, thank you very much. Welcome back to Ross FM 94.6, The Open Door, with myself, Margaret McHugh. I would like to thank Victor Connell from Longford Counselling Services for sharing his story today on Ross FM 94.6. Listen in live at rossfm.ie. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter. Listen in on the TuneIn app. And, of course, we are with you Monday to Friday at 9 to 7 with some chat shows, music, and plenty of entertainment to get you through the week. Of course, we've got the lunchtime shift with Neve on a one to two on a Monday. We've got the Rossi Way. We've got Ricky Dean on a Wednesday with some chat and music. We've got Mike and we've got Joe. We've got the mixed bag with Martina. We've got so much that it's hard to remember what we've got here on Ross FM 94.6. But we've got everything to get you through the morning, evening and afternoon. As I said, drop us a message and follow us on Facebook or Twitter. If you want to share your story, please drop us a line to our email address at info at Now, I will be back again with you next week with another interesting story from a person or organisation who makes a difference in society because we're all about being all-inclusive here on the open door on Ross FM 94.6. I'm going to leave you with some ads and music. Until next week, a slán go fall and take care of yourselves and take care of your family during these difficult times. Jerry Glynn Carpentry Roscommon. Bespoke interiors, kitchen and wardrobes, second fixings and flooring. Telephone 086 102 Looking for quality health products and gifts for that perfect occasion? Then look no further than Jorina's Health and Gift Shop, Society Street, Ballinasloe, County Galway. Feeling the need for renewed energy? Then here at Jorina's we have a range of vitamins and supplements to get you back on track. Wondering what gift to get for that birthday, housewarming or farewell party? Wonder no more, as we will find you the perfect product the minute you step in our shop door. Want to browse online? Then you can find us at www.jorinasgiftshop.com or call 090-646-585 or message us on Facebook at Jorina's Health Store. We're open six days a week, so why not drop into Jorina's Health and Gift Shop on your next day out? 
Heinz Pharmacy, Castle Street, Roscommon. Contact us on 09066 34147. We offer a wide range of in-store services. We also offer online loyalty points. So log on today to HeinzPharmacy.ie. That's Heinz Pharmacy, servicing the community of Roscommon. Contact us on 09066 34147. Trainers Garage Ballygar, main dealers for LDV and Isuzu commercial vehicles. We also supply used cars and vans and all makes of new cars. All of our customers get a 24-hour roadside cover from our garage. We also have a crash repair centre. And next year in 2020 we will be celebrating 60 years in business. That's Trainers Garage Ballygar. Green and Son Painting Contractors, Ballymurray, County Roscommon, provide a painting and decorating service with 40 years of quality workmanship and experience. Services include domestic, commercial, heritage and industrial. Phone 090-66-61047 or log on to www.tomcreenandson.ie. Every corner of my heart, let the love light carry, let the love light carry, light up the magic in every little part, let our love shine a light in every corner of our hearts, love shine a light in every corner of my dreams, let the love light carry, let the love light carry. Like the mighty river flowing from the stream Let our love shine a light in every corner of my dreams And we're all gonna shine a light together All shine a light to light away Brothers and sisters in every little part Let our love shine a light Every corner of our hearts Love shine a light In every corner of the world Let the love light carry Let the love light carry Light up the magic For every boy and girl Let our love Shine a light in every corner of the world And we're all gonna shine a light together All shine a light to light away Brothers and sisters in every little part Let our love shine a light in every corner of our hearts
You're tuned in to The Open Door on Ross FM 94.6. Presented by myself, Margaret McHugh, every Thursday between 9 and 10am. The Open Door talk show brings together all communities from near and far by giving them a platform to share their stories of life as it was, as it is. You will hear the voices of those who speak about the good, the bad, what unites or divides our nation and what can we achieve by joining together with one vision of an all-inclusive plan. Ross FM 94.6 Broadcasting around the world on the World Wide Web. Listen in online at rossfm.ie